Good morning, Grace Community Church. It is so great to have all of you with us here this morning. And if you are new, let me introduce myself, or rather one of our guests. Um, my name is Jay Messenger. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace. And on behalf of our entire church family, we are so glad that you are watching and worshiping with us here this morning. So that being said, you, or at least those of you who call our church home and who know our facility recognize that I'm in our cafe. And I'm looking forward, forward to the day, just like you, that once we get to come back and be together again in person, um, we'll get to see each other, hopefully, in this very place. And if you are ever a guest in the future, once we are able to meet and gather once again in live community, we hope that you will come into our cafe because this is a great place to find community and to drink great coffee. But with that being said, we're going to dive into God's word on this Palm Sunday together. And as we prepare to do so, I would just like to pray and ask God to reveal himself to us and to bless us as we seek him together. So please pray with me. Lord, we've been worshiping you, we've been singing these songs, and I'm so grateful that we get to gather and learn from your word together and grow in your word together. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. God, would you make yourself real to us? Would you reveal yourself to us? Thank you that no one wants us to see you for who you really are more than you. So help us to have eyes to see you ears to hear you, hearts willing to respond to your word and make your word come alive to us. Thank you that you love us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was preparing for our time in God's word this morning, I was reminded of something that happened to me many years ago. And in this season right now of COVID-19 and just all the hard news, of folks who are sick, folks who are being hospitalized, what have you. I thought I'd tell you a story of kind of a funny trip to the hospital. And some of you have heard this story before. I shared this story many, many years ago. But I'm going to share it again because I think it really sets the stage for where we're going to go in this passage in the book of Matthew this morning. So, many years ago, when we had little kids... Something happened to me one night while I was down on the floor playing with them that uh, is part of our family folklore, and it's something I certainly will never forget. So I would come home from work and always looked forward to seeing my bride, Jamie, and being with her and playing with our kiddos. And I remember one night I was playing with our kids, and I can't even remember what toy it was, but a toy broke as we were playing with it together. And when your cute little kid looks up at you and says, Daddy... Will you fix it? How in the world can you say no to that, right? So I actually ended up fixing a lot of toys when our kids were little guys. And one of the staples that we kept in our house to help with just that was super glue. We always had super glue lying around. So I went and got some super glue on this occasion. And I got down on the floor to glue this little part back onto this toy. And I was squeezing the super glue and nothing was coming out. That ever happened to you? Well, it was happening to me, and I wasn't too happy about it, so I, I pulled the dispenser off the top, and sure enough, the, the little plastic film had been punctured in the tube, and so I went and got something sharp, I don't even remember what it was at this point, and got down on the floor again next to this little piece that needed to be repaired, and I was holding the glue just real close so I could make sure I punctured it right, 
and I punctured it. But what I didn't know, or I guess what I didn't appreciate, was that I had been pushing on this tube and building up all this pressure when it was still sealed. So when I punctured it, a big glob of super glue instantly shot out and landed in my eye. And it burned. And it hurt. And so here I am yelling, ah! And Jamie's asking, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I run into the bathroom and I ran it under cold water, which was the worst thing I could have done. What happens when water comes in contact with super glue? It congeals it. It sets it. And so now my eye's really hurting, and I'm yelling, and my kids are upset, and Jamie's upset, and we quickly realize this is going to mean a trip to the emergency room. And so I don't remember who we got to come watch our kids, but someone graciously came and watched our little kiddos. Jamie lovingly rushed me to the hospital. We get to the ER. After waiting there with my eye just feeling like it's on fire, we finally get into um, the actual ER and into a room, and in walks this nurse. Now, you have to understand something. From personal experience, I can tell you that when you get super glue in your eye, it not only burns, it feels like someone has taken a fistful of gravel, shoved it into your eye, and pulled your eyelid over it, and then rubbed it all around. I mean, it was just, it was horrible. And so this nurse comes in, and he's this big, brawny guy, and he sits down, and he has this smile on his face. He's kind of chuckling, and he says, okay, here's the deal. I've been an ER nurse for 18 years, and I thought I had seen and heard it all. But I have never treated anyone with super glue in their eye. you got to tell me how this happened. And so I'm sitting here thinking, is this guy going to help me? I mean, my eye is just killing me. It hurts like crazy. And he wants to hear the story. So I tell him the story, and he listens, and he kind of laughs. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want this guy taking care of me or not. And then the doctor comes in, and um, the nurse puts this drop in my eye that basically deadened the pain. And it actually enabled me to open my eye up. The, the eyelid wasn't glued over it, thankfully, but it still burned. But with this dropper in, it didn't burn at all. It felt great. And I said, hey, can I get a dropper full of that to take home? And he says, uh, yeah, no, you'd lose your eyesight permanently if, if we did that. You just get one of these. But the eye was no longer hurting. It allowed the doctor to examine it. Yes, I burned the cornea, I think. And he said, well, the good news is this is going to heal. The bad news is it's going to hurt and be horrible for about mm, two to three days, and then it will begin to feel better. And so the doctor um, you know, wrote up some instructions, and he leaves, and we're left with this nurse who's still kind of half laughing at me, and he gets up and gets ready to leave, and he looks over at me on his way out and says, you know, I've seen and heard a lot of things. He said, but you're my first super glue in the eye person. But he said, you know, now I really have seen it all. Seeing is believing, thinking that he was so funny, and then he walked out. But seeing is believing is really a theme that captures this passage that we're going to look at together this Palm Sunday. In fact, this very passage is where we get the term Palm Sunday. And will explain for us why we call this and celebrate and still remember this as Palm Sunday a couple thousand years after it happened. So this Palm Sunday, Jesus is going to reveal fully who he is as the promised Messiah. 
And everyone's going to see it. But not everyone's going to believe it. In fact, the way this story is written suggests that many, if not most, didn't believe it. Even though they did see it with their own eyes. And this is so very ironic. Because Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, was writing to the Jewish people. In fact, all the gospel writers wrote their gospels with certain audiences in mind. And, in mind, and Matthew was written to the Jews. He quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer because he was trying to help the Jews connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament and to see Jesus as their Messiah and to recognize that. And so as we read this passage, what I'd like you to watch for is this. Who truly sees Jesus for who he really is? And who completely misses it? Or to put it another way, who is it that sees and truly does believe? And as we read this passage together, be prepared for some twists and turns and some ironies. So that being said, grab your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start at verse 29 and go into chapter 21 through verse 11. And we will truly see if seeing is believing. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Now two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them, be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them. And touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and they followed him. And now into 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And this is out of the Old Testament from the book of Zechariah. Say to your daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those branches were palm branches, by the way. The disciples then went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. And by the way, this is out of Psalm 118 from the Old Testament. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, 
the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So let's begin to work our way through this passage. We read that as Jesus was traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, there were two blind men just outside the city of Jericho. And that makes sense. Because this was a well-traveled path from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was about 15 miles, took most of a day to make the trip. And there were all these people going from Jericho and other parts of Israel and even other parts of the Middle East traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. So for this was lots of people. So if you were desperate, if you needed to beg, if you needed help, of course you would sit along this route because there were so many people going by who could possibly help you. But what happens next is hugely significant. So these two blind men are sitting by the roadside and they hear that Jesus is coming by. And what they shout out to him is hugely significant. They say, Lord, son of David, and they say it twice, Lord, son of David. Now, this was a messianic term. This was a title, actually, for the promised Messiah, which begs the question, okay, now if these guys are blind, if they can't see, how did they know Jesus was the Messiah? Could it be that they couldn't see with their eyes, but they could see with their hearts? And how did they know to do that? Had they heard the miracles? Had they heard stories about those? Had they maybe heard some of Jesus' teaching? How did they know Jesus was the Messiah? And the answer to that is, we don't know. But this is what we do know. They could see with their hearts. And they did realize and recognize that he was the promised Messiah. But what's significant is not just that they called him the son of David and Lord, but that Jesus responded. And this is why. As you read the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is very deliberate in how he limits the revealing of his identity to the public. For instance, in Matthew 8, he heals a man with leprosy and he immediately tells him, don't tell anybody. In Matthew chapter 9, he heals two blind men, two other blind men, and tells them, don't tell anybody. And then, as you read further into Matthew, Jesus begins to teach him parables. And in its most basic explanation, parables are stories told to teach a spiritual reality or a spiritual truth. And so oftentimes, most of the time, Jesus will explain these parables to his disciples privately, but he does not explain them to the crowd. There's a very deliberate, limited revealing of Jesus' true identity up to this passage. And the reason why is because if Jesus truly put all his cards on the table, openly declared himself to be Messiah to everybody so that it was unmistakable, the Jewish leadership would be forced to kill him at that point. Because either they needed to accept and receive him as the Messiah or 
they would have to shut him up. And so the significance of this is, Jesus is receiving this title from these blind men. And I wonder what the disciples were thinking at this point. Having seen Jesus on numbers of occasions tell people who he had healed or performed miracles for, don't tell anyone, had seen him deliberately conceal to some degree his identity through the teaching of parables. Now he's putting all his cards on the table and he's going to heal these blind men. And here's one of the first ironies. The two guys who are blind and can't see are truly the ones who see Jesus when most of the crowd can't and most of the crowd won't. And so it says he enters Jerusalem on a donkey and a colt. Now, for those of you who have worshipped at Grace for many years, maybe you remember some years ago when we were in the Gospel of Matthew and did the whole Gospel, when it came to this passage, to help underscore what Jesus was doing that day as he rode into Jerusalem, I had someone drive me into our auditorium on a Harley. You guys remember that? Someone drove me in on a Harley right up to the stage. And the point was, it was an entrance that no one could miss. If you want to make an entrance in a crowded church auditorium, have someone drive you in on a Harley. And that's what we did. But this is more than that. This is more than Jesus proverbially riding in on a Harley. There was symbolism, but there was also significant reality to what all this meant. And there's irony swimming around all over in this. Because Jesus is not only sending a message, he's fulfilling a promise. And Matthew helps us see this in his gospel. He quotes for us Zechariah 9.9, where he says, See, your king comes to you. My friends, this was written 500 years before Jesus was even born. In fact, this is one of over 300 promises, what the Bible calls prophecies, that Jesus fulfilled as the Messiah. And what Matthew's trying to do here is to help the readers and the hearers of this lesson, of this letter, who were Jews, fully appreciate and understand what's going on here. Jesus isn't just trying to make an impression like riding in on a Harley. He's sending a message. He is fulfilling a promise. And there's a lot swimming around in this for us to get our hands around. For starters, when a king entered a city from a military conquest, from a great victory, he would come in on a war horse. And this had happened in this very city in Jerusalem just a couple hundred years earlier. History tells us that Judas Maccabee, who led the revolt of the Jewish nation against some occupying forces, when they and he triumphed over them, there was a parade of sorts, very similar to what's being described here. And he came into Jerusalem riding on a war horse to celebrate the victory over the enemy. And yet Jesus isn't coming in on a war horse. He's coming in on a donkey and a colt. And there's a very definitive message here. And some of the people see it and get it, and some of the people see it and they don't. 
It goes on to describe in the passage that a number of them, including the disciples, laid their cloaks down before the donkey and the colt. And that was an act of celebration, but also great respect. It was the way you celebrated the entrance of a king coming back into the city from a great victory. You laid your cloaks on the ground. That's how you treated royalty. It says that they cut branches and We know from other translations, those weren't just any branches. Those were palm leaves, which is where this Sunday that we're celebrating together gets its name. The palm leaves, as they waved them, were indicative of victory. It was a celebration of Jewish nationalism. It was a celebration of great victory. And so, proverbially, in a sense, everyone in the crowd now is putting on their Jesus jerseys. Hey, I'm on Team Jesus. And they're all celebrating and waving palm branches and putting these cloaks down and they're yelling you know hey yay and we're going to see what they were yelling specifically in in just a minute but it has all this feel of a parade like when you and i go and see the rose parade but it's not really a parade it's a procession of praise and some of the imagery here is that jesus is coming in to this city and as he does so What he's communicating by his entrance into the city is he is going to war. He is going to war against sin and Satan and demons and death. But he's also bringing peace. Peace between humanity and God. And he will accomplish this in the most ironic of ways. He will declare war on sin and bring peace between us and God by losing. He will achieve victory through defeat. He will win through losing. He will bring life through dying. He will bring salvation through his sacrifice. And this reaches all the way back hundreds and hundreds of years earlier and all the way back to last week for those of us who saw Gary's sermon out of Isaiah 52 and 53 and it reaches back and pulls in all those promises and all those realities of the suffering servant the suffering savior the suffering messiah and so what are the people shouting well what they're shouting makes this not a parade but a procession of praise this is worship Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And once again, this is reaching all the way back to Psalm 118 verse 26. Now we're going back over a thousand years before Jesus was born. And Matthew is saying this is what is being fulfilled. This is what is happening as Jesus is entering the city. Hosanna doesn't mean hooray like you would shout at the Rose Parade or something like that. Hosanna means save us. It's an expression of worship. And even more significantly, this is a song. Psalm 118 is something that would have been sung during the Passover, during this very time. In fact, there are some scholars who believe that after the Last Supper, when it says that Jesus and the disciples sung a hymn before he went off to the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually the cross, there are many who think what they sung was Psalm 118. And this verse comes from that psalm. But they are praising God. And this is so amazing. 
Because doesn't this mean they're recognizing, they're realizing, they're truly seeing who Jesus is as the long-promised Messiah? Isn't that why this entire crowd is singing and saying and doing all these things? They finally see Jesus for who he says he is, right? Well, how does this passage end that we just looked at? What does it say? The whole city is stirred up, and understandably so. And people begin to ask the crowds, who is this? And how do they answer? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Many in the crowd, probably most in the crowd, still get it wrong. How? How can they get it wrong? They've seen the miracles. A number of them, at least the crowd that was traveling with Jesus from Jericho, they saw the healing of these blind men. Many had heard the parables. They had heard the teaching. We're not told what happened on that most of the day journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. There's probably teaching that happened from Jesus there. You put all that together, and honestly, it's reasonable to ask, how can they miss this? How can they think that Jesus is just a prophet and not the promised Messiah? How in the world are they getting it wrong? But before we're too hard on them, aren't you and I like that? Aren't there times we get it wrong? I mean, didn't all of us start out in the same place? At one point, we didn't recognize and appreciate and know who Jesus truly was and is. We all start out in the same place because oftentimes we think we can come to God on our terms instead of his. But to see who Jesus is and to believe in who he really is means we come to him on his terms and not ours. You see, people were looking for a Messiah, many of them, on their own terms. But the people who see Jesus for who he really is are those who come to him on his terms. Or to put it another way, people looking for Jesus on his terms see him for who he really is. Therefore, the most important question, literally, you will ever answer in your life is who is Jesus? You have to do business with that question at some point in your life. Who is Jesus? Who did Jesus say he was? Do you see him for who he really is? Because many in the crowd don't see him for who he is still. Do you realize every major world religion wants Jesus in it? There isn't a single major world religion that doesn't have Jesus fulfilling some part of that religion. In many religions, he's considered a prophet. Others, he's considered a sage or a wise man. There are a number of people who say, well, he's a great moral example. And I have yet to meet someone in my life who doesn't at least say he's a good man. But is that really seeing Jesus for who he really is? And the question still stands for you and me. Who 
is Jesus to you? Do you really see him for who he is? Because it was true for the crowd then, and it's true for the crowd now. Most, if not many, don't see Jesus for who he really is because they don't believe him. They want to set the terms rather than accepting his. And to accept his terms means, at the end of the day, that we worship him as Savior and as King. You see, at the end of the day, Jesus isn't looking for fans. He's looking for followers. People who will follow him with their lives. Do you remember the two blind men at the start of our time in this passage today? How did they respond to Jesus? Not as fans. It says they got up and they followed him. That means more than they just traveled with him. They followed him. They weren't casual fans. Oh, there were a number of people. Who knows? But it seems like the way the story is told, most of the people in that combined crowd of those who had been traveling with Jesus and those who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, who were fans. They happily put on their Jesus jerseys and cheered and joined in on what was going on, but many of those voices were the same voices that would be calling for Jesus' death just a number of days later. Gary, in his sermon last week, necessarily and wisely observed, there are some of you who are watching this, assumably, who don't want to be saved. You're not looking for a savior like Jesus. And I think one of the reasons why is you intuitively know that to follow Jesus means more than just being a fan. It means more than just being religious or following rituals or trying to adhere to rules or even going to church. It means following him with every part of your life. And the reason I can say that pretty confidently, that you intuitively get what this means, is it was true for me. Many of you know my story, but as a high school student, I went to a Young Life camp as a freshman in high school, knew they were going to talk about Jesus and, you know, wasn't going to the camp for that, was going for the camp for many other reasons. And as they talked about Jesus, it began to make sense to me, not just rationally, but even with my heart. And as the week progressed, I began to realize, I don't know that I want to make the commitment that's involved with this. I don't know that I want a Savior like Jesus. Because if he's my Savior, he's asking me to trust him. And at the end of the day, I didn't at that point. I wasn't willing to trust him because I knew what it would mean for my life. In fact, the very night where I did choose to trust Jesus and to receive him into my life as my Lord and Savior, I made a deal with him. And I said, okay. I'll follow you. I'll trust you on these conditions. You don't ever make me a pastor. You don't ever make me a missionary. If you're willing to shake hands on that, I'm in. Now, some of you are going to say, well, see, that proves the point. You can't trust him. You said you didn't want to become a pastor. And what am I today? 
I'm a pastor. Well, for the record, I've also been a missionary. And actually, if you know Jesus, we're all missionaries. We're all called to tell and show and live out that our lives have been changed by this amazing Savior and King. But all that being said, I love being one of your pastors. I I love how God has directed my life to this role and this calling that I get to have. I love being a pastor. I love being one of your pastors. Actually, it proves the opposite. It proves that God knows better than we do. I didn't want to trust him with my life because I didn't want to be a pastor. I am more fulfilled, more thankful, more appreciative that I get to be a pastor. I can't imagine doing anything else with my life. You can trust him, even when it feels like you can't. But see, we live in a broken culture, a broken world, and we have an adversary who like to tell us and convince us that we are our own Savior. You can be your own Savior and King. In fact, that's been the message from the very beginning of of human history. When Adam and Eve were in right relationship with God, as Genesis, the very first book of the Bible tells us, they chose to not trust God. They chose to disobey Him. And sin and death and destruction and disease entered this world and this world was was broken because they bought into the lie that they could be their own savior and king thank you very much but the question stands for you and me who is your savior and king today because you can't separate the two if Jesus is your savior then he also needs to be your king. Which means in following him, you don't get to pick and choose how you will trust and obey him. What you will do or not do or what you will listen to or not listen to. Once again, we live in a culture that loves to pick and choose when it comes to following Jesus. People will say they love Jesus, but they don't live their lives that way. Not when push comes to shove. And so that begs a question, another one for you and me. How does the Lord want you to say yes to him today? Is there a part of your life where you've been saying no to him? Even those of us who know him, who love and worship him as our Savior and King, still have this ongoing battle of saying no to him when we need to say yes to him. And when we say no to him, when we don't trust and obey him, that's really what we're saying is, I don't trust you. And we can trust this God. And yet there are still some of you who are wrestling with that. To your credit, you're wrestling with it. But you're wrestling with it. Which brings us to this. I want you to imagine right now with what's going on in our world with COVID-19, with this pandemic that we're all up against. And I want you to go back in time with me here just a couple months. Do you remember with me when the news first began to surface that there was this virus that they had never seen before in a province of China and it was making a lot of people sick 
It was virulent. It was very easy to spread. And then the reports began to come out that people were dying from it. And I remember thinking, probably like many of you, as time began to march on and as the virus began to spread, man, I sure hope that doesn't come our way. And now I want you to go with that reality with me in another direction. So let's say we get another news report in the middle of this COVID crisis that we're in. And there's another virus that has surfaced on the other side of the world. And it begins to infect people exponentially. And people begin to die from it. And as more research comes out, and as more is known about this, it's actually not a virus. It's not even a disease. It's a condition. And as they do more research, they begin to realize this condition is the human condition. It is literally in the genes, in the makeup of every single one of us. And this condition is fatal 100% of the time. My friends, this isn't hypothetical. This is reality. You see, God designed this world to be a world that was shalom, the way he always intended it to be. There was never supposed to be disease, sickness, like COVID-19 viruses, disasters, brokenness, death. And yet, every single one of us are going to face physical death. You know that there have been losses in my family this year. Those of you who know my family and our story, I've seen death up close. And it's horrible. And it is a reality that all of us are going to have to face at some point. But there's an even more significant death that comes with this condition. It's a spiritual death. Because you see, the reality is, when you and I die physically, we are still going to live on. The portion of it that, that makes us us, our, our soul, as the Bible calls it, that will live on forever. But the question will be, will you live on forever in right relationship with God, in heaven, with the Lord, or will you live permanently away from him? And this human condition that we're all up against is called sin. And the only cure for this condition is what Jesus did for us, all of us, through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. It's what we celebrate in this season. It's what we fully celebrate and remember next weekend on Easter weekend. But my friends, anything other than right relationship with God through knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior and King is putting a Band-Aid on this condition, being a better person, trying harder, buying into empty religion, defaulting back to empty ritual, trying to follow rules. Those are like putting a Band-Aid on a fatal disease. It's not going to go to the heart of the problem because the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. We all need a transfusion 
of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. And so my appeal to you is that the only cure for the broken, sinful human condition is right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Everything else will fall short of that. It's not a deep enough change. It's not a deep enough transformation. It's not a deep enough healing. The cure is Jesus Christ. This amazing God, the last night he was with his disciples before he went to the cross, before he died on our behalf and then rose again, instituted something, put something in motion that Jesus' followers have celebrated together for over 2,000 years now since Jesus' ascension to heaven. It's called communion. And communion reminds us of the realities of what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection mean for all of us. And so... As we prepare to take communion together, and I want to encourage you to go ahead and grab those communion elements um, that we told you about in advance so that you could set those aside. Now's the time to grab those. Go ahead and make sure that those are available as I continue to get us ready for this. And as you do so, if you don't have wine, if you're over age 21, or if you don't have grape juice or bread, you can substitute whatever you can for those things, because again, these are unprecedented times. So we're going to celebrate communion in the the best way that we can here. And if you have kids, it's your discretion, your decision as you guide them through this, if you want them to participate or not. But as we prepare to remember what it means that Jesus is our Savior and King, what he did for us on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, We have to remember that what Jesus instituted with communion looks back. It looks back at our broken past, at the reality that at some point all of us were trying to set the terms and conditions on how we wanted to live our lives. But communion looks at the present and celebrates that this God comes into our lives through our receiving him into our lives. And he rescues us from sin and death and demons and destruction. And it looks to the future when someday we will have a meal with Jesus that will celebrate all these realities will be with him. There'll be no more death, no more physical death, no more spiritual death, no more tears, no more disease, no more COVID-19, no more hand sanitizing, no more social distancing. Okay, you fill in the blanks. But it is a day worth looking forward to, and it's a day worth living for, to be sure. And as we remember this, I want to read you a passage that some of you will remember from our Genesis series. And once again, this literally is going back thousands of years now into human history to a promise that now we are celebrating together as we remember communion. It says this in Genesis chapter 48, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down and like a lioness who dares to rouse him. And I read that to you because this was talking to an individual, Judah, 
who one of the tribes of Israel would eventually descend from and who the Messiah would eventually descend from. Now listen to what is being told to Judah by his father in these next verses. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations will be his. Now this is looking beyond Judah to the king of kings who would come and rule. This is looking to Jesus, and it goes on to say this, and this connects directly to our passage today. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. And that's this incredible rich symbolism of there will be so much wine, so much celebration, such an incredible party when Jesus comes back a second and final time and makes all things right and restores shalom and we're eating this directly in his presence as his family, as those he loves and has called out of darkness into light, that there'll be so much wine we can wash our clothes in it. It's a remarkable picture. And it's what we celebrate and remember together. So as you think of your past, as you think to now, and as you look to the future, let's remember together what he has done for each one of us. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you are the God who wants us to see you. No one wants us to see you for who you are more than you do. So help us to see you for who you really are. Would we not demand that you be a savior and king on our terms, but would we take you at your word and trust you and worship and follow you as our Savior and King? Would we come to you on your terms? And I pray that anyone who's watching or listening to this, who has not received you into their lives as their Lord and Savior, would make that choice to trust you like I did, like so many who are watching this have done, and would choose to enter into right relationship with you. Thank you that you are so good to us and that you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There may be some of you who for the first time have come to Jesus on his terms and not your own and have received him into your life as your Savior and King. We would love to celebrate that with you. We would love to help you begin to grow in this life-changing relationship that you're now going to experience. If you will um, go into our Zoom prayer room that uh, we will put up here at the end of the service here so you know how to get here. Or if you want to go to our website and click the prayer, prayer button at the bottom of our footer, that will connect you with someone who can pray for you. We would love to not only know that you made this decision, but to celebrate this decision with you and to pray with you. So as we prepare to conclude our time together in this incredible time of worship and time in God's Word and on this Palm Sunday, 
I'm reminded of what God's word promises us and tells us in Revelation 19. And man, is this a word that I need to hear again and I need to be reminded about again. My friends, the reality is that if Jesus truly is who he said he was, if he truly is who he says he is, if he is the Lord and Savior, the creator of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as bad as things are now, they are going to get better. We have an incredible future to look forward to. And I've said this before, but it's true. No one knows how to throw a party like God. And someday, when Jesus comes back, when he sets all wrongs right, when we are celebrating communion and eating at the same table that he is, when we're all gathered together as his adopted kids into his family, this is the picture of what's going to happen. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. That is our reality. And that is coming our way someday as the bride of Christ, as his adopted kids, as those who have chosen to make him our Lord and Savior. So as you prepare to now go into the rest of your day and the rest of your week, clothe yourself with Jesus Christ. Put off your old self, put on your new self and your true identity in him, and live out who you really are because of who he is and what he has done for you. God be with you. Go live for him. And we'll see you on Easter weekend.